I know, obviously, I know very well your involvement and in my, my involvement too, I guess, with Bitcoin Uncensored. Did you have, did you do any other Bitcoin projects? Like, I, I know you were, I don't know how closely you were involved with Counterparty or helping with that. And, but like, what, did you do anything else with in, in the Bitcoin world? Other than buying Bitcoin, not really. Um, but yeah, like it's, I, I really didn't do any Bitcoin businesses uh, for, for the reason that like, I, I tend to think of Bitcoin as, uh, you know, if, if Bitcoin is money, then all businesses eventually are going to be Bitcoin related or, you know, something like it. So, you know, I've always thought that like you can, ge- you can build general businesses and you can uh, earn Bitcoin. Yeah, a lot of people think that like there needs to be a Bitcoin version of every business and that was how it was going to go down. Right. You are a businessman though, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you have, For, you yeah, have absolutely. definite relevance. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, yeah, I think I think it's important to talk about the fact that like Bitcoin literally is, uh, you know, if it is money, then all business is Bitcoin business. And I think the idea that like a business is a Bitcoin business, I mean, there are, there are businesses absolutely that are related to Bitcoin specifically, but you know, all businesses can be Bitcoin businesses. Do you think there is an actual definition for bit for a Bitcoin business? Mm, let's see. Is there, I mean, I think business is related to the onboarding or offboarding of uh, like Bitcoin stuff. Like exchanges are obviously very specifically Bitcoin businesses. Wallets are clearly Bitcoin businesses. Um, but again, a, a lot of Bitcoin quote businesses are very difficult to earn, to know how we're going to earn in. Like, I think wallets have always struggled with the question of like, we have users, but how do we earn money? Yeah. I mean, we've definitely seen some patterns with wallets with, with how they try to earn money and, and definitely some repeat mistakes that they only really get away with because of bull markets. Right. Which is, which is really strange because like, you know you know, wallets, they, they find it very difficult. I mean, like no, no wallets like take an output, for example, when you're sending Bitcoin, which, you know, makes sense. Um, but it does make it difficult to like, you know, have, have a wallet as a Bitcoin business purely, you're not making money. And that's the case with a lot of Bitcoin businesses is that they really don't have a way to monetize. And I think that that's okay. But like generally, like in business, you build things in service of the business. So like you might build a wallet because you need your users to have it. Like Bitcoin ATMs might build a wallet. I know of some that have. Um, But other than that, like, you know, Bitcoin businesses for the sake of business, it can be very difficult to like earn money in, which I think, you know, very well, right? Like I think Exotica was uh, a Bitcoin business yeah, I think there are like two different kinds of hard to earn money in in Bitcoin. There's the kind that like yeah, like with Exotica, like just hard to bootstrap and hard to get users, et cetera, like real users, um, hard like just general hardness of making money. Mm-hmm. But there's also like the hardness of of finding a way to monetize that actually works or is is make even makes sense for a lot of Bitcoin projects as well. And I guess that's maybe a better term for them as a Bitcoin project rather than a Bitcoin business. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was like Bitcoin Uncensored. I, I never really wanted us to make any money in it because I thought it compromised us. But also like the the way in which most, most quote, you know, well, blockchain businesses, I guess, make money is they, they often like advertise scams. That's how Coinbase is making money. I think this is a good moment to talk about like specific Bitcoin businesses and not, not like to talk shit about them, but like basically to like actually assess like how they have tried to handle this this problem of monetization and and whether it's actual like legit actually legitimate or or likely like for example like a good one to start with probably Blockstream, like
from what I can tell, they found ways to make money through mining and by positioning like with finance products. And then they're kind of using that seemingly to maybe bootstrap their their more risky products like like liquid and things like this. I, I think that there's a lot of problems with regard to business and developing a user base, particularly businesses that need a large user base to make money. So for example, a wallet business attracting users to your specific wallet, I mean, there's just a lot of competition. So if you go look for Bitcoin wallets, there's all sorts of them. And, you know, there's, there's the ones that, that have been around for a very long time, like um, what's the Airbits or whatever it's called, uh, Paul Pui's uh, wallet. Um, and there's, you know, the Coinbase uh, wallet and all sorts of wallets, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that it's very difficult to, you know, to build a business that requires a, a large user base. And I think that fundamentally what happens in a business like Blockstream is that you have like a, a large number of competent people. I think that from what I've heard, Blockstream is not the best managed company. Uh, I think that Adam is not necessarily a, a great, like, manager of a business, right? As he's CEO now, I think, uh, Austin Hill, I think was before, but what they've done is the result of the competence is that they're able to kind of go in there, look at what Bitcoin can do and, uh, talk to people and build things that address, that, that address an actual market. And in that way they can be kind of first to market and the most trusted source for a lot of that stuff. So they can actually make money without having to attract large, you know, numbers of users. Um, and they don't have to really ask that, uh, they, they don't have to, uh, they, they don't have that trouble of starting from zero, if you will. And they can, you know, kind of continually innovate in that way. And the other thing is that a lot of them are, you know, they're, they're longtime Bitcoin holders. So they, they probably don't necessarily even need the job. They're doing it for the passion and Blockstream, you know, it was very unclear when they started what they were going to do. I think that they've done a lot of cool things. They've been able to, as a result of their competency, build a lot of, uh, a lot of business models that other companies are already building. So for example, I think now they're offering mining. You can buy a mining rig from them and they can host it. And um, I'm sure they don't actually, they probably outsource a lot of this. They're probably like a layer for somebody else. I don't know for sure. But it seems to me that that's a that's a business that I would trust them with, right? I would trust a bunch of these Blockstream guys to do uh, what I think we kind of would have previously called a cloud mining um, on my behalf, because I know that their reputation is very different than like other companies that have previously done this. So that's that's the result of like taking people in that have large amounts of competency, and it's very different than like a lot of these wallets, which are people who are just kind of building wallets because they know we need them and they think that they're just going to get a lot of users. Uh, you know, kind of a build it if you build it, they will come kind of mentality. They're a good example because I think that like they're they're a good role model in general for Bitcoin businesses and Bitcoin entrepreneurs to look at. I think that's true, but I don't know how many, how many companies can be like Blockstream, right? Blockstream, uh, like Bitcoin has the most competent core developers, I believe, of any of, of these projects in the space. And I think Blockstream kind of has a monopoly on them in terms of, you know, uh, these, these programmers willing to work for them. And, and then you have, you know, people that are going off and sort of developing their own stuff who are also very competent. A good example is, uh, you know, the strike wallet. I don't know if you've used that on lightning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I don't that's think that's built that, by like- Jack Mahler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I, most people in Bitcoin will be familiar with, with Strike. I think that they're doing really well. I think they're they're showing the the kind of adding Bitcoin to finance with a good user experience direction. Um, 
Well, they're also doing the thing I think that that we, that we dreamed about long ago, which is that you can use Strike and you know, like like it's Venmo, and you, you know, people don't even know that they're using Strike or that they're using Bitcoin necessarily, unless they're sending that money to like a, a Lightning wallet or something like that. And I think that's pretty that's pretty amazing because we've talked about that for a long time, but we've never really seen it put in practice. Yeah, I think Strike is cool. I think it's definitely a necessary uh, user experience kind of uh, use case that needs to be solved. Um, or well, I guess they are solving it, but, um, that needs to be addressed. <laughs> uh, yeah. and then blockstream is like, I, I wanted to address your comment as far as like, there's not room for more than one blockstream. I don't think that like there would ever be like a, a actual clone of blockstream. It, it's actually a fairly diverse company as far as what they do, like having core developers working on the protocol, also making like mining products and, and, and layers and, you know, all these different things they work on. Um, but I do think that like, as far as like me referring to them as a role model, I just mean just like navigating being a business in this industry, you know, like they, they, they diversified, they, they found some things that worked and made money. They stuck to some things that care that they care about the most, you know, this kind of thing. But I also wanted to segue to lightning labs because like, I think anybody would define them as a Bitcoin business. They're not a nonprofit, but they do almost solely as far as i know work on open source software for a protocol and so yeah like what do you think i guess about it is that? very like, much like, yeah how no, are that, they that, gonna that make much, money that very much is the is the blockstream model uh you know that you mentioned it that's true and i don't know i mean like there, maybe they'll provide liquidity on lightning i think there's a lot of really interesting things that you know we're gonna see with lightning i mean lightning lightning have you played with it at all of course, yeah. Well, they, they, and they literally do provide liquidity on Lightning through their latest product. It's called Pool. It's sort of like a. There you go. I don't know if I want to call it decentralized way of selling. Uh, it's a decentralized way of pooling people into a central area to sell channels. Um, and, and so that they're working on. I don't know how success, successful it's been as far as usage and uptake, but that is what, like one of their latest products. Well, I think Lightning is is a slow on the uptake right now. And so I'm sure that, you know, a lot of those uh, revenue sources for them are kind of things that they foresee as being profit centers, but they're, they're just stuff that isn't, you know, it's it, lightning just not ready yet. You know, it's not ready even slightly. We're getting closer. What do you think is not ready about lightning? Well, there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems. Um, there's a lot of problems that lightning hasn't quite addressed yet uh with regard to i don't know i think the penalty of like maybe of of of, uh, of broadcasting an old state for example one of the people gets to take all the money i think that that's you know a lot of that stuff is going to have to be sussed out and changed and modified and we're going to have to find out how to like do this but like i mean the fear the fear of running a node is i think i think that anyone who's running a lightning node if they have like substantial money on it should be suffering from a sort of node anxiety you know you don't want your node to go down and to you know come back online incorrectly and i think i think that like it's clearly a beta product you know there's just a lot of there's a lot of small issues with it that need to and none of them are like uh deal breakers but they need to be fleshed out and so anything that you're building on lightning right now i think is is very much subject to its sort of current uh nascent state it's not ready right it's not ready for prime time and i'm amazed at the uptake that it has for a product that's essentially in beta i see it a little bit differently like 
you're saying it's not ready, but I think you kind of mean it maybe in two ways, or at least more than one way. Like it's not ready as far as like at the protocol level where you think that the actual design might not be ready. Like you mentioned the penalty thing, and that's that's a pretty fundamental aspect of the design, and it's not going to change until we get. Uh, I think the the CTV soft fork, which will probably won't be anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I was talking to someone today about one of the issues. Or if you you close it, if you open a channel without enough uh, without enough of a fee, you can have real problems trying to close that channel later on. Uh, and and you know I'm not exactly like I, I'm literally just getting my my lightning note up and running right now to start playing with it. But you know there are there are definite issues with lightning um, on on all sorts of fronts. But uh, sorry, I'll let you continue. But um, I just I just think that like the the problems that we're seeing, I'm, I'm excited to watch them get worked out, but yeah, they're, they're not going to be fixed until we have substantial users actually like, you know, working out. But a lot of these do not affect the users necessarily. They affect like the node operators, which is a very different. Ah, now I'm going to yeah, take that, take that as a segue because I, I don't disagree with you. Um, but I, I think of it a little bit differently and maybe, maybe, maybe you can keep this in mind as you continue your lightning journey. Um, because what I've, what I've come to learn after, you know, digging into it is I actually think we're making the same mistake with lightning that we made with Bitcoin, where we were like, oh, it does this and it does that. And it's going to fix this and it's going to kill shit coins. And, you know, like we just think it has all these magic properties, um, because it is cool. And we are kind of projecting what all these things that might be possible mixed with our ignorance of what it is actually possible. Um, and I think that what I've learned is that. You know, you mentioned node operators. Um, I think that Lightning is not for users. I think that Bitcoin is for, I mean, Lightning is for businesses. And I mean, obviously that means it's for like end users too, because they connect to the businesses. But I think the people running Lightning and caring about it and even knowing it exists need to be the businesses, not the users. And like you mentioned Strike and and they're, they're a good example but I kind of mean like the flip side of Strike, where Strike is hiding, masking like literally everything from you, and you just pay and pay, and that that should be the way it is. But we also like have situations where like you need to get you need to cue the user to be able to do things on Lightning that are more complicated than that, and those need to be addressed in user experiences that that aren't currently. So it's more of an app level, not ready for Lightning, in my opinion. So I think that like on a protocol level. A lot of it is pretty much ready, you know, like, yeah, there, there's some things that are bugs and some things that could be optimized, but like you can, you can hook in a wallet to an exchange to, you know, uh, to a user and you can make a whole little network and pay everybody and it work, it all works just fine. Um, so the, the user experience aspect is like at the app level. And I don't know that lightning labs is even going to, to, to attempt to solve that or any of the, or, or Blockstream either. Um, well, Blockstream does have some apps, but none of them have Lightning in them. That's <laughs> um, true. <laughs> so, like you know, it, it's it's. I think it's something that's like at the network level, and it'll be solved and treated more like you know having cell phone minutes, or there'd be some some kind of user experience for handling it. Um, and, and I think you'll find that like it's not. I don't know that users are meant to at least know that they're running a Lightning node. Um, in the mobile apps, you can get Neutrino in there, and so you can have this light lightweight node that that works. Um, but even that is tricky to install in apps and, and not not widely supported, et cetera. I don't know. I'm, I'm ranting a little bit, but yeah, I I, I don't disagree with you. I just think that I, I guess that the the side of the question that we didn't talk about so much with Lightning Labs is like you know I th- I do think they have a challenge to try to figure out how to make money. And yeah, they have this pool product, but it is a decentralized product, and, and anybody could run it and run their own pool. 
and and so they'll they're just everything they make you know has their own built their own competition built right in as well you know i'm I'm excited to see where lightning labs goes and a number of these other lightning protocol type you know or these other lightning apps that are being built i'm I'm amazed at the progress of lightning I think that a lot of people think it's slow um I don't think it is I think it's been amazing i hear people critique the out or the uptake of it um but i know that people who are running lightning nodes are making more and more money uh sitting in between transactions every year and i think it's i mean it's just a really neat little it's an amazing addition to bitcoin uh i I think i think what i realized about like the limited block space of bitcoin is that it sort of forced a uh going to the moon like moment in the space where we had to figure out ways around uh, around these you know perceived problems, like the fact that not enough people can interact on on main chain, you know, as people were saying, how do you solve that problem? Well, you know, there's this really amazing function in Bitcoin that allows us to like basically open these channels and uh, net, and I, I think that was a really amazing sort of uh, sort of proposal and the implementation. You're you're correct. It is it is a business protocol of sorts. The implementation is uh, is functional and simple, and really incredible. On the business side, I, I also what I mean is like the quality is basically that I think Lightning brings to Bitcoin is it, it obviously allows you to do uh, instant transacting, which is I mean relatively instant, which is pretty new to Bitcoin without zero conf, um, and then. It allows you to have high frequency, so you don't have to pay fees if you know you're going to do a lot of payments. Um, and high frequency payments are typically only happening in business, right? Um, and then the last thing it does is it adds centralization to Bitcoin. It lets you it lets you have centralization safely because the user holds the keys, and the worst thing that can happen is you know the the, the channel closes and they have to wait for the settlement. Um, and and so the, basically, there's only the nuisance factor. And so I think those are the three qualities it brings, like centralization, high frequency, and instant. Like these are very, very retail-friendly, kind of business-friendly qualities, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the instant payments, I mean, to me, I've, I've always said this, you know, people have been building these coins to address Bitcoin's 10-minute block time, which, which I think is hilarious in and of itself. But no one seems to really realize that the only thing that really matters, the only, the only speed that matters is zero seconds, right? Uh, if, you can't get, if you can't get payments down to zero, then 10 minutes is as good as two minutes, you know? Like if you have credit card payments for a business, I definitely agree with this. Yeah, if if you have credit card payments for a business, you're you're getting settlement. You're netting, you know, once every twenty four hours or once every, you know, maybe you're getting the payments three days after they've been put into your Stripe account or something like that. And I think that that is uh, that's generally fine. Businesses operate on that. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can mitigate it if you need the money right now. You know, you can get you know high interest, uh, you know, factored loans or something like that. But you know. Lightning brings these payment speeds essentially to the speed of cash, right? The, the sort of the zero time transaction, which is amazing. And it's really cool that you can do that on Bitcoin because we didn't think you could, you know, a few years ago. We thought that you needed, you know, one, two, three, four, five confirmations. And with Lightning, you can essentially, you know, just sit there and take money at, at the speed of Lightning. It's, it's very, very fast. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point with pointing out that like there's no difference between two minutes and ten minutes. This is one thing that actually frustrates me about Liquid is that like 
I think it's two minute block times or something. And it's just like, why isn't it shorter? Like if they, if they had the chance to design it themselves, like why isn't it shorter? And my guess is they're going to tell me it's for technical reasons, which is just going to be that like, I'm like, okay, go back to my belief that I don't think that side chains are a real thing or a way to scale Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that side chains are a way to experiment on Bitcoin. I I do think that side chains uh, could be a way to scale Bitcoin, right? Like you could, you could make them one second or something like that or, but you know, essentially sidechains, um, I think, are mostly for experimentation. Paul Stortz talks all about sidechains being uh, a way to kill shitcoins. But yeah. I don't think that they're really, I don't think that application really exists because the, 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 the true application of shitcoins is for founders to get rich by printing their own money. And if you suddenly tie these things to Bitcoin, like there's no actual reason to have a shitcoin. I totally agree. That's, that's the thing about it. Like it's just, I mean, I've talked to him about this before. There's... You know, if you have a like dark coin or something like that um, running on running on Bitcoin, uh, that's cute and, and all. But unless you know that functionality is actually added to the main Bitcoin protocol, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Like the reason that he started dark coin wasn't to have a fifty thousand dollar dark coin. It was you know to start at zero and get a bunch of people on and 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 uh, to buy it and to you know make money on this thing. It, it doesn't. It doesn't serve that application. So there, there would be no reason it would be on a side chain. Yeah, what I think Paul and some people sometimes don't understand is that like you can't solve the the quote unquote problem quote unquote of shitcoins, you know, by adding something to Bitcoin or or doing something on Bitcoin because the whole point of shitcoins is to be not Bitcoins, and and so like like drive chain etc. You can't like fix the altcoin problem. The altcoin problem is that people want an alternative and they want to speculate on an alternative and they want narratives to be the reason that drives that speculation. But I do, I do think there's some interesting stuff like rootstock bringing the EVM to Bitcoin. I mean, like, go ahead. I think that'll be an interesting thing that does kind of remove a lot of the claims about like Ethereum. Right. Uh, Yeah. I will fully disclaim like ignorance on rootstock at the moment. Like I remember like we probably both researched it at some point, you know, back in 2016 or 2015 or whatever, but like I haven't done it lately, but I really feel like, you know, I remember the last bull market, they, 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 they resurfaced and they did an ICO and now they have two tokens or something. And now this bull market, I really feel like it's just the bull market that revived them. And I don't really think there's actually real, real hype or interest there for what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, that could very well be, but I, I'd be curious. I'd, I'd be curious to look at it because uh, I, I don't know if they've actually got the EVM functioning on it or not, or, or what the state of that project is. But I do know that it seems to be back, and uh, yeah, they, <laughs> you know, um, but but I'd be very curious. Like, if if we do have a widely used EVM on Bitcoin or one that is easily accessible, like it, it kills a lot of the, the propositions that Ethereum makes. I don't think it's necessarily any more useful on Bitcoin. But it is it is an interesting prospect to be able to point to it and say to people, you know, you can do that on Ethereum, but like you can do it just as easily in Bitcoin with exactly the same language. I have a feeling that a lot of the actual interesting things, like the the, the closest to being realistically interesting things that are happening on shitcoins and supposedly not on Bitcoin, I actually think they're going to be like like discovered as decentralized web tech first. Like in other words, it'll just be a matter of like integrating Bitcoin in this way with with peers intentionally and you'll be able to do like the cool shitcoin stuff. Like 
not best example, but like we have like DLCs, for example, and these are just yeah. a different way of doing smart contracts. But like you have like, you know, we don't have this on chain. So there are different challenges for, for kind of coordinating using this. This is the, the brave browser problem, I would say, right? Like brave browser could have been a very cool product where you were tipping people in Bitcoin all over the internet. Yeah. Instead, they released their own token. Um, but I agree, like there are neat applications out there that people have built with shit coins that they could easily throw Bitcoin on, but they don't. And I actually think that represents like a, a pretty good opportunity for Bitcoiners. Like if the Brave browser provides value, people think it does, um, then I think like particularly as Lightning gets underway, I think it's a little hard to give people these small tips when you know you have to pay 40 cents or 60 cents to have an on to, to get anything through on chain. Um, and right now, like even that is a suspect as to whether like a, a transaction would be mined at that rate. And that'll eventually like come leak into lightning too, because lightning transactions will just be cheaper than Bitcoin transactions, but not necessarily cheap, you know? Yeah. I don't think they'll be free by any means, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that they'll be cheap enough that you could actually send a 30 cent or 40 cent tip to somebody. And, uh, and that would be great. I do think that most a lot of the applications that I hear people like Elizabeth Stark talk about, like uh, streaming payments for workers, are absolutely inane, very stupid. <laughs> and I don't think that those applications, like, I don't know. I, I tend to be very critical of libertarians. I tend to think that they have some of the dumbest ideas. And that's, that's one of them. Like workers getting paid on a two-week time span or like every second that they're working, it's really not that different. Uh, I don't care what anybody tells you. It's it's just not. Yeah, I mean, you would basically to get paid in streaming, you would need your work to basically be like super, super important and dangerous. I'm guessing, like that's the only reason you would want to be paid immediately, right? Like maybe, most- but even then, like even, even if it was dangerous, like we have direct deposits. So you know, to, if if you die on Thursday uh, because you were doing something, you know, cleaning windows on a skyscraper, you're still going to get money in your bank account uh, to, to the to the date that you work. Yeah, on Friday, a week from the day that you die. <laughs> I think that streaming payments is going to only be interesting wherever streaming data is interesting. So, like, that's what I think too. Yeah, if you're streaming, but, if, but even, if you need a live feed to something, then it's okay to pay for it in a streaming. But you, but ultimately, everything in in reality is is at a sample rate. Like, you can only witness something in a moment, whether it's digitally as a human eye or whatever. Everything's at a sample rate. So you're just talking about how frequent you are doing a sample rate. Correct. And, and that's, you know, that's the thing Like, is the frequency, uh, like, I, I guess, I guess you might call it payment resolution is the resolution of payments. How, like, at, at what point does that become important? And do workers need to be paid every two weeks or do they need to be paid every like four and a half minutes? Um, like it, a lot of these questions are very stupid and, uh, lightning doesn't necessarily solve them or, nor make, nor make the stupid uh, questions more interesting. Like There's also like, will I even like that? Like, do I, right. I like how, how will that feel to like actually be on the clock? Like, Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a very weird problem. And I think that people are, you know, in Bitcoin and in, in shit coins generally, they've always been very obsessed with settlement times. Right. So, uh, 10 minutes is too long for a lot of people. Um, banks take a day or two sometimes to do things. 
The reason that these settlement times exist is so that you can find mistakes. You know, a good example, if you have employees working, let's say someone forgets to clock out, but you don't want to pay them for those three hours on a streaming payment, right? You want to be able to correct that before payroll goes out. And uh, that's why companies do that. That's why they have, uh, pay, you know, they make adjustments before payroll goes out and they need the time. And it doesn't, you know, a, a lot of these problems that I hear people saying uh, lightning solves are very, are, are very wrong. There's no reason to solve it like that. Paying for a cup of coffee, on the other hand, you can do that with lightning. That's kind of cool. I guess in the end, the amount of the, the optimum amount of action is the fewest amount of actions, right? So like, yeah. like you always want to try to batch or, or optimize something if you can, regardless of the format. Well, netting isn't any less efficient because lightning, right? Like we, we, as people, as businesses, you want to net. Netting is an important feature. And, uh, you know, lightning makes the ability to net a little bit faster, quite a bit cheaper. Uh, all of that's good, but you want to net. You don't want to necessarily be doing things like sending like, you know, 12 cents every second. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, what do you think about Counterparty? Do you still follow that at all? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, especially during the NFT boom, Counterparty has been very interesting to me. Um, the NFT stuff is 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 interesting, only <laughs> insofar as like I don't think anybody really knows what they are, and I think in Counterparty, because of the rare Pepe stuff, people have been thinking about the what NFTs are for a very long time, and. Yeah. I think I think that they the NFTs really work well when the NFT itself is like a database object, right? So like Magic the Gathering cards might be a really good application for NFTs, but I don't think that it makes a lot of sense or is very interesting when applied to like an, a piece of art. You know, yeah, as, I agree. As like a digital receipt, I, I find that to be very dumb, and uh, you know, it it's sort of art DRM, if you will. Like, what are they going to do? You know, the, well, the it's not even bad as our DRM. Like, even though it's not just because something is not like easy to enforce doesn't make it useless. But like, correct. It, most of them aren't even that like and NFTs are usually just like metadata pointing to a link somewhere, you know? Well, well, well that's what I'm saying, though. Like, if you have a, if, if you bought the people, right, the one that was at Christie's for what, 60 million dollars. And you, you're like, I own this people. How do I, know, how do I know you own it? Well, I have, you know, the digital receipt. So what do you do with this people? I don't know. You put it on a display at your house somehow. You put it on your TV. Well, if I have access to that file, I too can put it on my TV. I can put yeah. it on there in exactly the same. Well, way. the question would be, do I actually own any rights? Like, do I get to own the painting? Like, and so I can like license it to let somebody put it on their book cover, for example. You, you probably, well, no, because you don't even own the copyright, right? The, the artist retains copyright. Oh, yeah, see, so, so like what you do is, I don't know. I think the only real uh, thing it gives you is the conference of the idea that you own it. So like if a museum wanted to display it, well, they might have to ask you first in some weird formality. And you could say, yes, I'll, I'll lend it to you. And then I don't know, you have to take it off of your TV while they have it also. But if I download the file and I put it on my TV, my having it on my TV doesn't diminish your ownership at all. And we have equally valid copies of exactly the same thing. So you can own it. You might be the one who holds the receipt, but I have exactly the same thing in my house. And I can get exactly the same experience, which is very different than like owning the Mona Lisa or owning a, a counterfeit Mona Lisa. 
Yeah. So I, I and this is something I, I've been thinking about recently, and I just said it in a podcast a few days ago. But like, I think what NFTs are are and what people are are not really fully understanding that they need to be is like metadata objects. Like they basically are. You need a way for creating and enforcing like a network of people that define this key as something else, right? Like it's like. Because you can't, the something else isn't in the key. It simply isn't. And so yeah. like it, it, the key is just like a credential. And actually, no, the NFT is actually a credential. You know, you know, and so like the people, your key is just your ability to prove that credential. And all NFTs try to do is take that credential and make it into a bearer instrument. Because for some reason, you know, giving credentials requires bearer instruments. I don't know. But the, the truth is like they could do the same thing. Like if just for the art use case, even if it included rights, they could do the same thing just by using like any key pair, signing a message to another key pair. And that's it. Right. Or well, <laughs> even more than that, like what, what, you know, if I were a Christie's and I saw this, I'd be like, you know, what we could do is we could build a database of provenance where like if you want to sell digital works then you can buy the digital work and we will record in the christie's database um you know that this person owns this work and then when that person wants to sell the work they can come to christie's and they can be the only ones to do it so like if people are buying this digital art and owning digital art is an actual thing which you know i i can i can at least acknowledge that there's some validity to that um then you know there should be a centralized database that has all the owners of these things in some way. You don't necessarily have to even use your name. You could literally just, you know, use PGP or something like that to to prove the idea that you're the person who has the right to sell it. But it doesn't need to be on a blockchain. That doesn't actually confer any rights or anything interesting. Yeah. Agree. Agree. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, like again, like as database objects, I think it's I think it's interesting enough. Like again, if you're you know playing a card game online or something like that, but generally these these NFTs really do not confer anything to the end user. And it's kind of the same problem as the ICOs from the last boom. Uh, people were buying them as if they were equity, but they weren't equity, right? They yeah, were, I call them sentimental equity, basically. Yeah, it's it's people people were treating them like equity, but they weren't equity, and they were stated as not equity in all the the documents and the white papers. And I always thought that was very interesting that people still treated them as equity and still bought them as if they were equity. And they did the same thing with NFTs. Yes. And, and that's, you know, that's what's really interesting about the space. I, I found that there's a lot of things about blockchain and Bitcoin that are very interesting to me. And one of those things is that we, we tend to smell as humans a hole in the universe. We know that there's something there. So like NFTs are an example of this. We know that there are some use that there could be some use cases for this NFT stuff, right? I'm giving a good example. I think uh, like the the idea of like trading cards, perfectly good use case. The reason it's a good use case is because digital trading cards are essentially bearer instruments, and blockchains are for bearer instruments, digital bearer instruments, and that's that's perfectly interesting, a very interesting thing, but yeah. but. The idea, you know, this idea before people have figured out what NFTs are for, they they've smelled that there is some some sort of use case here, and they then extended it to things that it isn't useful is isn't useful for, such as art, generally. And the fact that people are using it doesn't necessarily mean that it is interesting or useful for that purpose. And I find that to be a, a sort of a difficult thing for people to realize that like things can pop in value. Uh, 
But essentially what you're selling in this case is a receipt that can pop in value. It doesn't make the market right. The market can be very wrong about what it's doing. And I, you know, we see that all the time in Bitcoin where the market is completely wrong about uh, how this technology ought to be used. And yet people use it in that way for a while until it falls out of use because you know, people realize that it's kind of bullshit. Or in the case of the ICOs, a lot of these companies end up failing. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because now, now we have a bull market and there's no more ICOs. They're pretty much done, at least as, you know, conceptually. Maybe they'll return in the next bump. Yeah, I think it's it's just a weird phenomenon where like when you're new here, you have this weird mix of ignorance and greed, ignorance and greed that allows you to basically like ignore things and gloss over things that the cues are there. Like you could learn them if you dug in and actually paid attention a little bit and and actually know what's going on. But you would more prefer to ignore them so you can have you know believe this that you have this opportunity to make money, um, and, and then yeah. people just kind of stay in that state for as long until they stop making money. Right. And then they move on to the next thing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm wondering what's going to happen with like a Christie's or Sotheby's, you know, if they're jumping into these things, what are they going to think? Cause like, I've talked to a couple of people there and they're always saying that they're like researching this very exciting new art, uh, this new art stuff. And it, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what they're, what they're going to discover because when you take, you know, it's, it's sort of an emperor has no clothes situation. And are, are we just going to pretend for the next 10 years that NFTs are things? Uh, in the way that that we're saying they're things, or are we going to ever discover that you know they're not? <laughs> does that does it happen? At some I think point? it'll depend on how well it actually sticks as a narrative for raising money through the bear market. You know, like if I can keep raising money for my shitcoin company by saying I'm building an NFT platform or revolutionizing NFTs, then it'll be around for the next bull market. But if I can't do that, then it won't because it's just going right. to be like a retired narrative. You know. Meanwhile, I see companies like Masterworks.io, which allow you to buy fractional shares of art pieces, and they do it in a, in a full-fledged database. No shitcoin, nothing. Yeah. Uh, totally incidentally, like I actually had a call. I don't know why they asked me or why they wanted my opinion, but like I had somebody, like a, a gallery like Christie's. I had a, recently had a meeting uh, call with them because they wanted to let, get my thoughts on NFTs and how I, how I thought they should do it and such. Um, and I'll tell you what the result is they're build, I'm pretty sure what they're doing is building, uh, an NFT platform for Ethereum. <laughs> and so like I did, I even had the chance. So I, I literally had the chance to tell a gallery, like you can just use any key pair and sign a message to somebody else's key and keep it data. Like the, the example you just gave, I literally like gave it to them and I said, look, if you wanted to do like the, the total Chad kind of, uh, aristocratic kind of move and actually do what like how I think Christie should do it. It would be to like to like have this formal like white glove thing where you're like having high security for the keys and how you generated the keys and you would prove that like this is the now this is now the Christie's key and you would sign a message to the like buyer and you would give him, you know, uh, a printed copy of what was encoded in the message and you would frame it and everybody would see it and make news and there would be nothing to do with blockchain. <laughs> They could absolutely build any of these platforms and, you know, actually make some money. There's a giant hole in the market. And it's funny to me that that solution has been around for, I don't know, uh, 50 years. Um, not 50, but probably 30, 40 years, essentially since PGP. I don't, I don't know when PGP was developed. But you could have done something like this that long ago. And yet they're pretending like, well, they're not pretending. They truly believe that this is a new innovation that has uh, has recently been come up with. 
and it's not. It's just something that is the word blockchain's involved, so they think it couldn't have been developed in any other way. The same thing happens when people get into shitcoins and they hear about all the narratives. They don't actually realize that a lot of those narratives are like narratives from the past two decades from people trying to build the internet. <laughs> and Correct. Like they're, they're just like like things that people have always wanted people to do in the internet, but they don't for some reason, or they've never been designed well or finished. And now shitcoiners are going to claim to finish them. And that's it. Well, this is the thing I've always said about the, the blockchain stuff is if you listen to pitches about blockchain, what you end up with is a realization that oftentimes the word blockchain is substituted for this idea of human coordination. So if you have blockchain, then you don't need human coordination, right? And, uh, and blockchain doesn't really solve that problem. Blockchain doesn't solve the problem of human coordination. You still need people to do things. So, you know, the, the, the key pair signing that you're dis you're discussing, the reason it hasn't been developed is because someone would have to develop it. And now that we have blockchain, it, it, the, the fact that you could develop it doesn't go away, but now they think it has, you know, essentially been developed because blockchain exists and you know blockchain doesn't even really facilitate it or make it easier it's just that someone else has done this and made it easy for them to do and i feel like given that uh given that that fact there actually would have been possibly a way that christie's could have developed this in the 90s and made a ton of money in the meantime selling digital artwork and i wonder if that's true I wonder, I wonder what would have happened if they had done that. I back bet then. we could find this in the wild if we actually looked that it already, I, I bet you exist. it does exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Like, but again, uh, the provenance thing in that, in that sort of environment is a little bit difficult, right? Like what if I want to do a private sale of a piece of art now in, in a world where you do the key pair stuff, um, you could transfer it by going and, you know, signing and giving it to this person. Um, but if you forget to do that, does that person now not own the art? Do they not own the ability to sell it? If the person loses the proof, do they not own the art? Uh -huh. Yeah. And this yeah. is, this has been my question about Ethereum. Like if you don't transfer the rights, um, let's say of a physical piece, like people say you could, you know, tie one of these receipts to a physical piece. If you have the physical piece and you don't sign off that you sold it, does that person not own it? Do you own it still? Because it just seems to me that the mess of provenance is in the fact that like paintings move, uh, art moves all the time, and well, it's because they're really move. talking about trust and whether or not, yeah. and, and and basically substitute witnesses. That's all, and, it, and it's going to move regardless of the token. All right, let's move on. Um, I think we should talk about maybe uh, Bitcoin uncensored and more more specifically Bitcoin maximalism a little bit. Sure, um, and let's <laughs> let's see if we can try to put it through the lens of business. Um, I don't really know what that means or what that would look like, but so much as like, like, I don't know, maybe is, do you think Bitcoin maximalism is good for business? Bitcoin max. Yeah, I do. Um, and I, I would say, I would say it's good for business because it, it moves you towards, uh, a, a consistency of direction, but, but also it, it means that as a business operator, you don't have to kind of be, uh, up on the latest trends, if you will, you can focus on building your business. I think that it's actually really dangerous for businesses to become obsessed with cryptocurrency. And I think we've seen this a lot where businesses come into the space and the first thing they do is, uh, you know, spend a lot of time trying to research exactly what, what, what 
you know, what they should do and what they ultimately end up on is, you know, Ethereum or, you know, Dash or something else. And they'll try that for a while. And then eventually they make their way to something else and then something else and then something else and then Bitcoin. And uh, I think that that's, that's a giant waste for businesses to like spend all of the time and money to develop all of these different types of, you know, platforms or on all of, because what businesses really are in the business of is making money. Uh, so if, you know, not a Bitcoin business necessarily, let's say you're building a business selling food, um, you know, if you're trying to, to focus on any crypto at all, like you're going to waste a lot of time trying to just, you know, market your business and build your business. That said, I would say that a lot of the stuff, I mean, no one spends their coins right now anyways. Um, I, I tend to believe, I tend to be a believer in the idea that like, if you're a business, you probably shouldn't focus on the space at all. If you're not like directly in Bitcoin, if you're not an exchange, businesses should be in the business of making money. And then if the owners, when they get their dividends, want to invest in Bitcoin, you know, more power to them. And I think that's the best way for businesses to focus on this space is to have a founder maybe that really likes Bitcoin to watch it closely and then to just not really participate in the business aspects of Bitcoin. Bitcoin as money eventually will make it into your business if it if, if it works as money. Yeah, I would agree with most of that. I would say that like there is a little bit of a flip side where probably and I only would really appreciate this because I worked at Bitrefill, but probably a business should just be currency agnostic for the most part and just accept whatever whatever form of payment they can actually parse through their own business system which would may, yeah. which may include adding payment processors well if if a payment processor takes bitcoin cash or ethereum or cardano or any of these others you know like if you're a business and you're getting the cash in your bank account as fiat you're going to be ambivalent as to what people pay in yeah because you can always buy bitcoin with whatever they paid you in anyway yeah absolutely that's what you want. and and, and that's what I'm saying is like what you want as a business really is just you, you want to not have to think about the payment process at all. You want to you want you want to receive fiat. You want that to go into your bank account and then you want to be able to extract that as dividends or as, uh, you know, payroll or whatever. So it's it's really dumb for businesses unless they're Bitcoin businesses to uh, to, to really focus on that. And, you know, Inogenix or whatever the companies that does a credit card processing, if they add a way to pay with Bitcoin, then that's great. And you as a business, all you have to do is turn it on. But you know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of studies, particularly with e-commerce. Um, I, remember, I don't remember which company it was, but many years ago, like probably seven or eight, um, there was a company that added Bitcoin processing to uh, to their checkout, and it lowered their checkout percentage hmm. because people had another option to pay. Yeah, and that's not good. <laughs> you know, you, you really want, you want businesses to, uh, businesses want as many customers as they can possibly get going through that checkout process and finishing it and, and putting in their credit card number or their ACH or whatever it is that they want. And they just want the money. So to add Bitcoin, because, you know, out of principle or something like that, especially if it hurts your business, that, that's a, that's in my opinion, a fight, like a violation of your fiduciary duty as a business owner. Hmm. But what about like the concept of, like, uh, you know, we have uh, hyper-Bitcoinization, which I kind of, the way I interpret that is basically like circular economy, in which my definition of that, or I think the actual definition of that, is something basically about like removing as much conversion as possible, you know, re reducing the amount of, of friction, you know, having the least amount of points between nodes, et cetera. Like circular economy is about efficiency and removing conversion. And so if you are somebody that like subscribes to 
you know, hyper-Bitcoinization or the concept of a circular economy for Bitcoin, you probably want to be part of some kind of movement towards Bitcoin businesses that only use Bitcoin and don't accept all the things because all the things are an inefficiency. Yeah, except that businesses, again, are are trying to receive fiat. So, Well, that's an assumption. I, I definitely think there are starting to be people, that businesses that do want to accumulate Bitcoin. Yeah, well, I think it's different when you put it like maybe in your treasury, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like some of the, you know, um, MSTR or, you know, Tesla talking about it now. Uh, other companies probably going to do yeah, that. Yeah, I don't think people I, are using I, Bitcoin for their overhead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think that most businesses really want uh, want fiat for the most part, and you know if you want if you want to make an ideological statement with your business, I mean that's 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 you know the business owner's prerogative, but I do think that like businesses really have an obligation just to accept fiat or to get money into fiat, and uh, and then the business owners themselves or the business employees or whoever they can do whatever they want with their money. If they want to invest in crypto, they can. If they want to invest in gold, because uh, they're gold bugs, they can. Um, if they want to invest in silver, they can. If they want to put it into equities, they can. And I, I think that it's just it's incumbent on businesses to operate in a normal environment with something very stable. I, I think it. I think Bitcoin adds a layer of risk to business that isn't necessarily what what they should be taking on as businesses. As an individual, I think it's a very different question, but as a business, that's just not, I mean, to me, the risk of like a highly volatile asset being added to your uh, I want to nitpick and say, I don't know if it adds risk so much as changes the risk profile in a way they may not know how to handle. It it definitely adds risk though, because, you know, volatility is risk uh, in the markets. I think there are people that disagree with me on that, but that, that tends to be the sort of accepted definition well, of volatility is I think risk. this goes into the sample rate thing. Like the, the, I think everything has the risk and it's just like how, how big and how often it will happen, particularly with money. Like what will happen with your fiat is suddenly in 2020, they, they'll print, you know, half the money supply. Like that's the risk. Yeah. But bus- businesses are generally not they're not there to like, I, I, I don't think that businesses should be accepting, you know, big currency risk as a part of their portfolio. And, and like, maybe your thesis is that it's not risky because like it's less risky than holding us dollars. I, I tend not to subscribe to that. No, no, no. My thesis is not that it's, is not that it, my, my argument is that it's not more, is that it's not more risky. It's just different risky. It, it, it It's, it's absolutely more risky than fiat though. It, it just, it is, it, it's just much more volatile. Yeah. And if volatility is risk, like you are adding a dimension of risk to your business. But fiat has volatility as well. It's just on a different sample. It's rate. just very minor. It's very minor. It's not volatility. Minor, like, been, like the past year, it's been huge. Uh, it, it's not, it's been, it's been within like 6%. You know? Okay. I mean, I, I don't want to get a conversation about how we measure, measure inflation, but I would prefer to measure by the money supply. That's how I would measure. Yeah. I don't measure inflation that way. I, I measure it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, I understand that there's a delay to the effect, but in the end, that's the truth of it. And even that we don't know is true. It's probably worse than that. I, I'm guessing that the U S over the next, I mean, we'll see. Uh, and, but, but, you know, per my very sober, uh, view on things, I, I tend to think that we're probably going to have a lot of deflation this year. And in spite of uh, the money printing and in spite of the Fed lowering the reserve ratio. Um, so, you know, if I'm right, uh, even if I'm wrong, like, let's say that, let's say that there is a lot of 
uh, volatility this year and in, in, in the value of your currency, you know, we're, we're still talking within a few percentage points, whereas Bitcoin fluctuates, you know, the other day when it, it dropped what 40%, something like that, 35%, it's huge. The volatility in Bitcoin is very big and, and that just adds a completely new risk dimension to business. And if you're a Bitcoin business, that's one thing, like you're taking on Bitcoin, you need, you need, you know, a certain inventory of Bitcoin, whatever the case is. If you're a Bitcoin ATM, you know, that's the bit you're literally the business, the business that you're operating in is the, is the business of volatility. But if you're just like selling, I don't know, donuts, you're not, you, that's not a risk that you should be taking on. I, maybe I'm, I'm packaging it wrong. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say that like, you can you can design you can choose any configuration and achieve the same risk exposure if you design it properly. Like you can hold your Bitcoin and then do uh, futures shorts or something to to make it stable to whatever degree of stability you want to offset whatever amount of volatility you want. And it could be sure. totally stable or, or a little bit within one percent. Like you can have whatever you want if you configure it. And so the point is the reason why I'm framing it this way is because. If you think this way, then it make, make, makes you choose like which it makes you actually think about what your actual risk choices are and what you really think about the risk of having your money in fiat. Because there there are different risks like that it's typically going to be held in a bank and what risks of, of you being able to access that money someday when you know if you might not have, have total access. Uh, the money printing, et cetera. There are real risks, and you could design yourself into a situation where you have less exposure to them. Yeah. Well, with less exposure to some instead, <laughs> instead of others. True. Basically, you can rearrange things however you want. Yeah, you can absolutely rearrange your risks. Um, but you know, for me, you know, the, the business question is whether businesses themselves should be like putting their money into Bitcoin or accepting Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I just I just tend to think that fiat is the more responsible alternative right now in in this era, and that you as a business owner can take on different risks personally. Then, uh, then I think yeah. your business should. Well, I'll, I'll agree in this way. I'll say if your specialty is not something to do with Bitcoin or risk or finance, or trading, like, then don't do those things. <laughs> you know, uh, outsource them to people you trust, or just don't get involved with them. Yeah, but, I, I just, I mean, like what you're talking about is a fairly sophisticated set of trades, and like if you're a business owner, that's probably not what you're focused on. Yeah, you would end up outsourcing that to someone else too, and trusting them. Yeah, anyway. you'd have to trust them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it really is a different set of risks. You know, like I said, if you're selling donuts, you want to sell donuts for cash and you want that cash. And then again, if you want, you can, when, you know, take your salary or your dividends and you can buy Bitcoin. So <clears throat> what do you think Bitcoin Uncensored would be like if it happened this year? Oh, man, <laughs> um, we'd probably be making a lot of fun of the NFTs. Uh, we'd probably be making a lot of fun of these DeFi projects. Um, we'd be focusing a lot on like, I, I, I hear a lot of these DeFi projects are um, pretty scammy, very obviously Ponzi scheme. -like. Oh, we have Elon now. Elon's here. I, I'd, I'd probably be laughing at Elon. Um, oh, imagine Elon you know. on Bitcoin Uncensored. That would have been so much better yeah. than SNL. <laughs> I mean, Elon would never have come on. No. Um, well, but, maybe, you know, yeah, well, the Elon, the Elon thing would have been interesting because I think we would have probably done two shows. Uh, the first one would have been that Tesla's accepting Bitcoin. We probably would have diagnosed it correctly. We would have said no one's going to buy a car with Bitcoin, and very soon he'll probably get back out of Bitcoin. 
and we would have been right, you know, two weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. Elon, Elon coming into Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoiners, I, I was surprised by the reaction to it because they were so happy. And I, I think that people don't remember the history of all of these guys. Every single person that comes into Bitcoin and begins selling things for Bitcoin very quickly has a realization that nobody uses Bitcoin and uh, at least not for purchases of that sort or of that magnitude. Um, you know, like this was my realization at the Bitcoin bowl. If, if you remember that mm-hmm. we went to the Bitcoin bowl. Oh, I wanted to bring this up because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but like we've had a, a series over the years of people that have like sponsored things with Bitcoin, made yes. big, like like Super Bowl ads or whatever. And you, you're bringing up the Bitcoin bowl, which I believe was BitPay. Um, and, and, uh, recently we had strike who you also mentioned, they did, they yep. sponsored an indie race car again. And I was just like, oh man, this is, this is like feeling very dangerous. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's a misuse of money. I think, especially there were so many people. top signs in hindsight, you know? Uh huh. And, you know, but the Bitcoin bull was, was interesting because they had arranged for this one taxi driver to, begin accepting Bitcoin. And, you know, you had this large concentration of Bitcoiners. BitPay tweeted about them. You know, everybody was talking. There were articles written about this taxi driver. We took the taxi at, uh, we, we called that taxi driver, and we had him come pick us up at around 1 a.m., basically the last, the last trip that this taxi driver took. And we asked him, we said, so did anybody pay in Bitcoin today? The whole day, tons of Bitcoiners. He said zero, zero people paid with Bitcoin that entire day. Not one. Awesome. And, and I remember like we, we went back to the hotel and we were looking at each other like, what the fuck is happening? Like, how is it that you have the most Bitcoiners here and nobody, not one person was willing to spend? And this was, you know, this, this is in a world where everybody was so excited. I mean, I've seen this. The shit coins do it too now. They, they get really excited when like, some little piddly vendor somewhere starts accepting their shitcoin, and you know what I know is that nobody nobody spends that shitcoin at that that vendor ever, um, and that's always going to be that's going to be the case for a long time until you know people feel comfortable like they have uh, maybe some like like a lot of the growth maybe is squeezed out of this, but you know I I could have told you that Elon opened it up for Bitcoiners. I bet you I bet he sold one and a half cars to Bitcoiners, to a Bitcoiner. Um, I bet almost nobody used Bitcoin to pay for them. And, you know, two weeks later, they pulled the plug. And he pulled it with a fair amount of resentment, which I thought was interesting. The amount of resentment he acquired in those two weeks. Yeah. I, well, I think what the resentment was paired with that, like he was on his little kind of Dogecoin adventure and he didn't like that. Like basically Bitcoiners were making fun of him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And and so he wanted his Dogecoin adventure to be like pure and true and, and, and novel. And Bitcoiners just kept wanting to shit on him for it, which I think he deserved. But you know. yeah, I agree. <laughs> um. So yeah, Bitcoin uncensored, you know, like I, I don't know if it's like still got the same mystique that it had a couple of years ago. Like people always talked about it, say, Oh, you got to go watch it. I, I kind of <laughs> wonder what the new crop of, of Bitcoiners is. How, it, if they're getting exposed. <laughs> no, they, they haven't heard about it. 
Well, hopefully um, this will help. I'm, I'm not very famous, you know, but, you know, <laughs> some people will hear this and hopefully go back and listen. You guys should if, you, if you're listening. Uh, Bitcoin Uncensored, I, I think the whole anthology is still on YouTube. Um, was I, a, I think I think I think Chris took him down, but like oh, I, I think he? there is stuff. Yeah, you can find it. I think that there's a couple of people talking about hosting it. Um, so I, I think that soon uh, you'll be able to find you'll be able to find it in places. We can make a, but, a, a version of the biz website where we put it all up there and people have to pay for that, it. That's true as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think that a lot of the new guys haven't heard of, of Bitcoin Uncensored. They they don't know what it is. And it's funny because a lot of the stuff, like I'll be in these rooms and I'll hear arguments that, you know, I created being told to me about these things. And I think it's very funny um, just because it was, it really was sort of the cultural uh, pivot for Bitcoin. It was like really Bitcoin Twitter before culture. Bitcoin Twitter kind of. It was. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. Um, it really did define Bitcoin culture for many years. And a lot of the stuff, you know, the, uh, the, I just heard about Bitcoin. I'm here to fix it meme and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. A That's lot of the stuff getting used like, a lot lately. Oh yeah. Um, especially on Elon, a lot of that stuff, you know, it was developed in real time on Bitcoin and censored and then, uh, you know, ex- exported to the world. And now I hear people repeating these things and I, I think it's cool. Uh, it's had a long lasting effect on Bitcoin culture. And I don't think there's been anything quite like it, uh, at least in terms of its effect. So, you know, hopefully that remains. I think that we did set sort of a, a toxic culture that Bitcoin has, which I think has, has really kept Bitcoin um, pure and very free of a lot of the scams that these other coins have had to endure and seem to be okay with enduring, uh, which I think is, is, again, interesting. I think I'm just thinking this out loud right now, but what Bitcoin censored was for me, and I think maybe a good cultural theme for Bitcoiners in general was like, it was just sincere. It was genuine. You know, it was like, no matter how stupid or wrong or right or whatever, like everybody was just trying to experience Bitcoin, like in the open with the clothes off, you know, like that's what Correct. it felt like. <laughs> and and well, so like, it was honest, yeah. you know? Well, I, I, yeah. And I, I think that's, that's important because again, um, I think encountering a lot of the FUD that we see in Bitcoin right now, we're dealing with this energy FUD again, which we've seen for many, many years uh, and watching Bitcoiners freak out about it. I think it, I think Bitcoiners have a tendency to, to, to be very dishonest about, uh, about the protocol and, you know, what's going on with it. Like the claim, for example, that Bitcoin uses renewable resources, it's complete bullshit for the most part. It really is not running on renewables. Um, that's objectively false. And it, it always will be. I'll, until, I'll tell you this. You know, I don't know what's objectively true or false. So I think all of it is bullshit. So I don't even yeah. bother looking into it. And that's how, that's how well, I handle it. You know? <laughs> well, well, yeah, but like, like I, I'll make the simple argument. Like Bitcoin goes to where the energy is cheapest and the energy is cheapest in places with subsidies. Real simple. So you have Bitcoin going into places like Niagara Falls uh, where they sell their uh, Niagara energy to like New York cities, right? And the energy that comes off of the falls is very cheap, but the cities have limited amounts of that. So what will happen is Bitcoiners, miners will go into these cities, eat up the entire subsidy, and then the town from then on runs on like 11 to 13 cent per kilowatt hour electricity after the Bitcoiners eat it all up. And so net net, there's a lot more energy used but the Bitcoiners technically were running on renewable 
energy. And I think it's funny to watch Bitcoiners be on their back heels trying to defend it rather than kind of just making the argument like, okay, so what's your point? Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. It has to. There's no alternative. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, but I do try to kind of bring these sides of things to, to the debate. But I, I don't get I don't so follow anyone on Twitter details. these days. I, I got kicked yeah, off. Yeah, I looked for you. I, I looked for you today. I was like, where's this account? <laughs> I got kicked off. Yeah, I don't know. With the energy debate, like, I, I, I mostly agree with you. I, I think that, like, a lot of, at the very least, a lot of the people that are kind of cheerleading these narratives for either side are definitely not verifying or researching these narratives and, and how true they may or may not be or how technically true they may or not, may not be, which can be pretty important when you're talking about energy. Well, um, I just don't think that Bitcoin needs to lie to win. Yeah, like, exactly. That, that's, that's, that's what really bothers me. That, that's always bothered me. Like it was funny to me when people said that Bitcoin was not used for drugs. Um, that was, you know, Bitcoin and Sensor would go out and be like, yeah, okay, well, here's a drug user. How do you get your drugs? Oh, we use Bitcoin. Oh, I guess it is used for drugs. Um, okay, this is a hooker, you know, what do you do? Oh, I, I, you know, use Bitcoin to, you know, list my stuff on back pages. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin was like dark world money and it still is. And, uh, you know, probably less so now, but it's hard to deny that that's, that's, that's what it was. Well, it is because it is the black market. It's like, Correct. It's no, it's, there is no rules other than the rules in the Bitcoin protocol. So mm-hmm. it's like literally the only place you can't make rules, <laughs> you know, so it, it is the black market. Right. I, I actually think the energy debate is like totally like a false premise anyway. Like yes, on many levels, like just the idea of like that we should like decide which energy is okay and which energy is not okay and how we buy it. Because it's like, once you've said, I'm going to sell coal energy, I'm going to sell, you know, solar energy, like it's just a question of price, right? <laughs> like, and so if you start making a question of who or for what, like this is like regulation at, at a kind of granular level, which you can't actually enforce. Like you can't enforce how individuals use energy, which means you can't enforce any type of regulation in any special way. But, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, I, I see that all the time. Like, I saw it on uh, Y Combinator the other day. Someone said we should ban proof-of-work chains, which I thought was a very funny idea. Well, the other absurd thing is that, like, I don't know if I even believe that, like, there's a, such a thing as, like, more energy being used. And what I mean by that is, like, like you know, thermodynamically, there's all the same amount of everything all the time, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, if the miners are using energy to mine in a, in a trend... Like that means they're not doing something else they would have done. And so like, like what would they have done with their energy or how would they have used energy if they weren't mining Bitcoin? Like they probably would have started, you know, storage farms or who knows what they would have done, but they would have done something. Right. And they would have done something to try to make as much money as they could, you know, close to that situation. So like, I don't think you can actually like, it's like the whole like Bitcoin doesn't create evil. Like it's just, just because people do stuff with it doesn't mean that those things are newly happening because of Bitcoin. Yeah, but they would have burned far less energy. I just find it uninteresting. Like, I, maybe they would have so burned what? more. Maybe they would have become coal miners or literally. Sure, or, you know, but, but like, so you, what? You have no idea. Right. So, well, so what is no, the bigger point? But it, yeah. just in general, yeah, like, I don't know. It just seems like a stupid argument. And you're right. I think Bitcoin should just be more honest and say, okay, yeah, Bitcoin is used for crime. Bitcoin is used for uh, drugs. And it, it probably will be used for pedophilia and all these bad things because it wouldn't actually be freedom technology if that weren't true. 
Right. And again, you get to these libertarians and they go, you know, Bitcoin's going to make everything hunky-dory. It's going to make, you know, war stop. It's going to make criminals stop. It's just amazing tech. And you kind of, you sit there like, no, <laughs> it won't. It, it'll, it'll continue to be used for all of these things like criminals. It'll continue to be used for, um, you know, all sorts of nefarious activity and it'll be used for a lot of good stuff too. So I guess we should take a moment and tell everyone that you also have a podcast, right? John Seth's World. I do. <laughs> Very infrequently, we, we release uh, an issue, sometimes more frequently than others. We try to do every week, and that turns into like once every couple of months sometimes. Um, but, you know, we're over there, John Seth's World. It's soundcloud.com slash John Seth's World. And, uh, you know, we've got some good interviews, interesting stuff on there. I don't, I don't listen to that many podcasts, but I do. I, I listen to yours about as frequently as any, as any other. Like, Good. I, I, I listen maybe once a month to a podcast episode these days. Nice. So you're probably caught up. I don't remember. I'd have to look at the latest episode <laughs> and try to remember it. But your 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 topics are always so like you know uh, variety. So I, I don't. Yeah, we, we we tend to swing from topic to topic and uh, just talk about stuff that interests us. And and you know we're Bitcoiners, so everything in the world kind of relates back to Bitcoin. Yeah. That's that's the fun part of being Bitcoin is you can just make everything mm-hmm. about Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and again, it's not as frequent as like the old Bitcoin uncensored, which was like you know once to twice a week, depending on how you know what we could do. But it, it, you know, it is it, it's just it's just our thoughts. It's me and a group of guys that are in varying stages of Bitcoining. Some of us have been around for a long time; others have been around for less long. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, I think Bitcoin Tino put it up today, talking about how basically. Every single person that comes to Bitcoin has to follow the same journey, no matter what. You can't really like jump over uh, the journey. You have to shitcoin for a while. You know, you have to you have to experience all the exact same mistakes that every other person who got here made. And you will not listen to anybody as you're making those mistakes. You have to do them yourself. It's it's a very interesting phenomenon, and I've I've witnessed it now. I don't know. It's it seems to happen most often during bull runs when people come into the space. Um, you know, you get new people and they just start making the same mistakes and it's very, very funny. Yeah. I think Bitcoin kind of in a way attracts a type as well or multiple types. Like there are certain kinds of people that are just more likely to get, put themselves in that position. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I do wonder when we have had enough people in the space for a while and have had enough people lose money in the space that they sort of consolidate. I wonder if that will happen or when, um, you know, I do fear one of my big fears here is that we end up with a lot of people putting a lot of money into these projects that are, that end up being scams. Um, and maybe they won't be figured out today, uh, but they might figure it out in five years, six years, 10 years. Well, that's the deep fear that kind of drives most of Bitcoin Twitter tweets, right? Like, yes, they they just want every, it's catcher in the rye syndrome. You just want to stop everybody from falling off the cliff, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's why Bitcoin maximalism exists because so many people here have been, you know, we've, we've been through the fire, we've been burned, we've lost our money in Ponzi schemes. Uh, we've given our money to projects we thought were good. Um, we realized we didn't understand mining or proof of stake or whatever the case it is. Um, and we, you know, we did things that were stupid. And now we need you to buy our Bitcoin so we can get our money. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. We're trying to like <laughs> pump our bags. That's, a you know, joke, it, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's been mentioned a number of times. But not really, but yeah. What's, what's interesting about Bitcoin is that all these other shit coins people buy and they buy for a profit, but in Bitcoin people like hold 
and they just only want to hold. They want to get as much Bitcoin as they can and hold it. Um, and that's that's a, a phenomenally different use case than like Ethereum or, or Monero or any of these others, which are essentially just transaction mediums or in the case of uh, Ethereum, it's pump projects, whether it's the DAO or whether it is, uh, you know, NFTs or what, ICOs. Yeah, people get so excited about what's possible with networks and with the internet and with computers and with programming. And then they actually, they confuse discovering all of that stuff with discovering mm-hmm. cryptocurrencies. Yeah, and, and you know, like it's, it's interesting. Ethereum is like this masturbatory project filled with projects that are basically projects to fund other projects. And I, I find that very interesting as well. The fact that there really is nothing useful anywhere except Bitcoin. And I'm, I'm curious as to how long it will take people to realize that. I hope sooner than later. So I want to come back around and talk about businessy stuff for a little bit. Sure. Um, I want to do like a kind of, uh, I think, like a case example. Like you mentioned Bitcoin wallets earlier and mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, we talked about Bitcoin businesses. Let's talk about like bootstrapping and marketing and that kind of thing. Like, Let's use a wallet as an example. Like, what do you think? You know, using your own expertise and recommendations, how would a how would a Bitcoin business with an app or a product go about marketing itself effectively in the current internet environment? I guess it depends on what. Let's what use the wallet the, wallet app, I guess, because I, I know you have you have experience with with uh, you know e commerce, and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to tap into that a little bit. <laughs> well, if, if I were if I were a wall, I think that the wallet space is very crowded and what i probably would do if i were developing a wallet would be i would probably do it as an ancillary to like another part of my business like if i ran bitcoin atms uh you know i'd have a lot of people with the opportunity to then you know download a wallet because they're going to get that receipt from the atm and they're going to look at it and be like well what do i do with this and the answer is uh you know put it on a wallet what's a wallet here's the wallet you put it on so, you know, that's that's a pretty good use case, I think, for wallet development. Um, and, and it's very interesting. I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity there. Again, you know, you're not really monetizing the wallet in that sense. You're monetizing sales or your Bitcoin. Uh, but, you know, the wallet, the wallet has some cool opportunities there, too. I mean, I've, I've always I've always been amazed by wallet developers. Um, you know, I would think they would take a de minimis output or something like that from transactions. Maybe they can't. I, I don't know enough about wallet development, but I would think that that would be something they would do. That you submit it to the chain, and you know, it's actually something. It's not something they typically do, but it is something that actually Lightning makes actually possible. I don't think you could do it before, not trustlessly, but Lightning would make this possible by basically, um, if your channel is with the wallet company, the wallet company gets to set the first fee that you pay. That's true. So. And I think they should set a small fee. I mean, I do think that wallets should uh, should be able to be a service that can, you know, generate income. And I think in Bitcoin, it's difficult because, like, the easiest way to generate income in a wallet would be to show people advertisements. But I think that that would be extremely unsafe and insecure and you know, privacy violating. So, you know, they've been reluctant to do that. So what a lot of them have done is they've tried to build these little marketplaces in their apps I don't think that really works very well. Um, you know, so I, I think the wallet business is a really hard business. 
Yeah. And uh, and that's why I would say it, it should be it should probably be ancillary to like an actual use case if you're running a business. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that having context for your products is like super important. And I think that a lot of a lot of Bitcoin businesses and businesses in this space in general, like they're a lot of times engineer led and, and you know, they don't have like a lot of. Uh, specific experience with marketing or product and these kinds of things. So that they tend to have certain bents to how they do things. Mm -hmm. But th there's a lot of opportunity here. I mean, I think Casa, Casa Hot is a great example of opportunity that exists. Um, you know, you'd, you'd think that someone would have come up with that entire business plan years ago, but they really didn't. And uh, I think it's because it's so hard to understand how Bitcoin works. It's really difficult to get your mind around how, you know, seed phrases and seeds work. And, uh, and, you know, it's just difficult to build a business like that. It, it really is. So apart from like how the actual product and, 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 you know, decisions about which product and the challenges of it, what about like, you know, what's going on in the, in the internet and e-commerce world, just as far as like channels and advertising and, you know, approaches, you know, guerrilla marketing, like I'm, I, I used to be savvy in this kind of world, but I don't follow <laughs> it at all anymore. Like what? As far as if I had a Bitcoin wallet and I wanted to advertise it and promote it and get people to bootstrap it, what kind of kind of traditional means do you think are out there that actually would be appropriate? I, I'd probably build a website that answers Bitcoin questions, um, and then oh, so SEO route, to, I guess. Is what you're yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's my expertise. I mean, you could yeah. certainly do like Google AdWords, but I'd probably have people literally just um, just purchasing. Uh, or like just just coming to my site and making the site as useful as possible, and then and then trafficking that into the wallet. Uh, in wallet, I mean, I'm I'm kind of amazed that more wallets don't do things like integrating with Coinbase or uh, you know with these other exchanges. I think more and more have been doing that. It's becoming but a trend. I, yeah, you're starting to see wallets. Well, at least you're starting to see exchanges have pet wallets, basically. Yeah, I would have I would have done that very early on. I probably would have used. I used like affiliate marketing links and stuff like that to get people onto Coinbase and, uh, and, and then encourage them to dump those coins into their wallet. Um, you know, that sort of thing would have been the thing that I think could have monetized wallets a little bit earlier, but a lot of them didn't really do that. And that, that's always kind of baffled me. Do you include like any type of like support strategies for your SEO, like social media behavior or so, you know, like other aspects to it? It depends on the business. Like I tend to believe uh, that in e-commerce, you should let your business speak to you as to what the next step is. So, you know, there's a lot of businesses that do very well on Instagram. I know a guy down here, he started a fishing lure company. He built his entire reputation on Instagram and then he launched his e-commerce site. The result is that he was able to translate those Instagram subscribers into actual buyers of his fishing lures. And, uh, and you know, he's doing phenomenally well as a result. So that business has a, an Instagram component. I don't think he has Twitter. He could probably do very well on YouTube. Um, you know, and, and, and that's generally like my strategy for business has always been, if you're going to start another channel, the channel needs to be unique, number one. And number two, it needs to have like a definite, uh, a definite use case and ROI. So like, I, I don't generally start social media channels for my company unless I have a very specific sort of methodology uh, about going into that channel. And actually turning that channel into a revenue generating uh, engine. That's interesting because, like, or, or, or a cost a cost lowering engine. Yeah. Well, the, the the default is like 
Twitter is everything to Bitcoiners, you know, like they think that all of Bitcoin happens on Twitter and they don't, you know, this is something that you can see a lot better once you actually work for a Bitcoin business that has actual customers, <laughs> you'll see that most of Bitcoin Twitter is nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting though, like I think the podcast space is huge in Bitcoin yeah, and I yeah. think that's why, you know, podcasters in Bitcoin, they command absurd amounts of money for fairly small audiences. I think it's because Bitcoiners like are very, very, it's a very targeted group. Yeah. Well, it's also very hard to target them. Um, you know, from working Correct. at BitRefill, trying to do advertising and sponsoring and events and all the different ways that you could market the company and the products is actually not that many that you're even allowed to. <laughs> um, if you just mention cryptocurrency and even, and even the ones you are allowed to, it's inconsistent and they'll treat you weird. And yeah. Yeah. So I think that the podcasts provide a really good opportunity for getting the word out it's too much now well it's it depends on what your product is you have to you know bitcoin's hard because you have to in order to advertise you have to have this product that's like you know very valuable or is going to attract basically every bitcoin in the known universe um so that you can sell a lot of it right and that th th there aren't a lot of those products there is kind of like a little reputational ladder you can climb though with bitcoin twitter we're basically like if you can get a decent amount of followers and a decent amount of people that like retweet you and listen to what you say and know who you are that's true. you can suddenly get a job at a bitcoin company doing their social media and then you can get you, you end up on their product team and you end up you know with your own startup five years later you know right <laughs> is that you describing you <laughs> a little bit it wasn't intentional yeah. but yeah it started coming out that way yeah i mean that, that's true though that's exactly true I mean, I, yeah. I wouldn't I mean, put it that way for me, mostly maybe a little bit out of ego because I would say I do have actual skills and experience other than tweeting. And so it, I, I wouldn't attribute it to Twitter so much as that, like, that was definitely a good uh, thing to you know, throw my weight against. Mm -hmm. So uh, for those who don't know, Bell actually did a show with us. Uh, he, he followed us over to the, the, the Satoshi Roundtable number two. <laughs> Um, which we were not invited to. Nobody calls uh, me Bell, by the way. They don't even know you're talking about me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you go by now? I don't know. I mean, uh, John or Bitcoin. Or Your real I, name, I, Eric? I, nobody takes the time to call me my handle, and I don't see people in real life anymore. So. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, okay, so Bitcoin Airlog and or John um, went with us to uh, the Swisher Roundtable, or two as our cameraman. And there's a lot of things that happened there. I mean, we, we reported on most of it, but it was just – it's very funny to have been there and to hear, uh, you know, to, to kind of recount that because there were really only three of us that kind of watched everything. You know, we nearly got kicked out. The The club didn't know what to do with us because we were members of the club. <laughs> we had actually purchased memberships. I mean, it was it was all very funny. You remember when uh, when when Bruce got so angry, he tried to kick us out. He's, he had Rose go and like, I, 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 I can, like when you say it, the pictures still go into my brain. Like I remember. Oh, yeah, it it's. It was they, they they forced us to hand over a uh, <laughs> the s the SD card yep, uh, yep. to them, but we had a second SD card. It was just it was there was a lot of there, there was a lot of really funny stuff that happened there, and uh, you know the, the Michael Turpin situation where he went to the bathroom and it took him twenty minutes to come back out. Um, you know it was just it was just a lot of fun. I miss those days. It was fun to go and you know make trouble. Uh, but also do what I would consider fairly legitimate journalism. Yeah, I, I, I basically agree with all of that. It was fun. Um, I, I hope that other people are having their own kinds of experiences today in their own ways, you know, with, with their own things. 
I, I doubt I it with Corona. I, I don't see it. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, this whole situation with the energy FUD and Elon Musk has shown me that like Bitcoiners really do take themselves too seriously right now. Um, they really think it's important that people take Bitcoin seriously as like a, a business opportunity or something like that. And Bitcoin, I, th- I think they, I think that this part's been lost is that if, if you know more about Bitcoin than anybody else, you can show up in any room dressed like a, a, a clown in any way you want, even among bankers, and they have to listen to you. And uh, you don't have to take it all very seriously. You can do anything you want, because if you actually understand this tech, then there aren't that many of you. And the other thing is, people will come around to Bitcoin eventually. You know, Bitcoin is uh, itself wearing a suit. You don't need to wear a suit on its behalf. And 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 it's just very funny to me to watch all these people try to like make legitimate, cogent arguments in favor of Bitcoin. The world needs Bitcoin. Bitcoin exists. It's going to eventually move toward Bitcoin. And you don't have to do anything about that. You can just laugh at people who don't get it yet. Yeah, I, I guess uh, if you have the catcher in the rye syndrome, though, you're not going to just laugh at people that don't get it yet. You're going to want to make sure that they don't miss the boat. Um, and, and that may not be your job, and you're not a white knight or a savior, but that is what the justification a lot of people have probably for their behavior. Yeah, but you know, the more people you get on the boat, uh, it's not, boat's not a great analogy because the more people you get on the boat, the, the higher the boat floats, you know? And, uh, and if, if you, if you truly believe that Bitcoin is sort of the one and only, um, spend your time stacking sats, spend your time getting as much of it as you can. And, uh, and you know, Barry Silver will do the rest. He'll onboard the rest of the, the, the people for us. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, that's like, not the you, best you, approach. I don't know. Who cares? I, I understand what uh, you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> you'll let Barry Silver do that. And, and you can sit back and, uh, and just, and just get as much as, as you can acquire. It's a little bit greedy, but I just don't believe in, in, in Bitcoin evangelism. Like, you know, it seems like most of the Bitcoiners do these days. I think it comes down to like how much you really want to make your life in general about evangelism or the progress of man or your role in that. Like if, if you're that kind of, if I don't know what the word for it is, if, if it was religion to be like a Jesus thumper, but like basically like a, uh, an evolution thumper or something, you know, like you, if you really care about the, the overall quality and progress of man, you're always looking to optimize everything all the time and complain about all inefficiencies. So I think there are, there, there's a little bit of that underlying too, you know, I get that, but, you know, I've heard it said numbers of times, and I like the phrase, people will buy Bitcoin at the price they deserve. And honestly, you can't make them more deserving of it. They're, they're going to do whatever they do, and they're going to make, they have to make the same mistakes every other Bitcoiner does. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's just all games with words and projection and stuff. Like, there's no such thing as buying Bitcoin at the time you deserve. Like, it's not a real thing. It, <laughs> like, no, it is. The, the time you deserve is the time that you decide that Bitcoin is, you know, the, the one that works. Like, I, I honestly—that's well, like saying you'll, everything will happen to you the time that you deserve, and that life is. That, that's correct. Really that's it's it's, it's 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 an obvious tautology, but it 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 serves a purpose and essentially like. I don't know that it's a good thing to get Bitcoiners into Bitcoin before they've made all the mistakes because then they make them while they're holding something actually valuable and uh, they're going to make the mistakes no matter what, right? They're not, they're going to keep all their coins on, you know, some weird foreign exchange. They're going to, I, so like, I don't disagree. Like 
I'm anti-evangelism too, like as like something mm-hmm. proactive, like, but I am pro, it's like you need to pick up trash when you see it, right? Like if it's not, if it's on the, if it's on no, the I don't ground, know. this isn't Disney, this isn't Disneyland. Well, Disneyland would be a bad example for what I'm saying anyway. But what I mean, it's like, you know, uh, if there's trash on the ground, it's because somebody else left it there. Somebody else didn't pick it up. And there probably isn't somebody else that's going to pick it up. Um, If you see it there repeatedly, then that becomes even more true. So it's like you, you and if everybody leaves trash on the ground, you live in trash, right? So like eventually somebody has to do something about it. And, And the only way to scale anything is if everybody does everything on an individual level. So like you right. impose on other people with your trash, uh, kind of losing my train of thought here. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. You're saying that if you, if these uh, shit coiners go into the world, they're going to cause other people to shit coin. Well, not just that, but like it, it, people losing money is a bad thing. Like it's an inefficiency. Yeah. But, but honestly, if you want to keep people from losing money, go find a Ponzi scheme in your backyard, disrupt a meeting, uh, scream and yell you know, and, uh, and, and do that. Like that's an actual risk. That's what people are doing uh, though, because what what you're doing is you don't go around screaming at people to do things that you don't know anything about. And these, all these people in Bitcoin feel like they know a lot about Bitcoin. And so that's what, yeah, they they do feel like it. And, and I, my frustration is that like when I go into these rooms and hear people talking about it, all they do is they they repeat libertarian rhetoric. And it's, it's very frustrating because like they come in with this understanding that like everybody's here because of sound money principles or something like that. And it's a bad assumption, but if you want to like go affect people in your backyard, go find a one coin or something like that and go to the meeting and, and tell like, let everybody know it's a Ponzi scheme that puts, that's, you know, a highly risky thing for you to do, but that's actually going to change some people's lives versus like trying to stand athwart history, uh, yelling stop in a way where they're going to shit coin. They're going to go buy Ethereum. They're going to go buy these other shit coins. Um, you know, and, and you're just sitting there kind of telling them they shouldn't do it. Virtue signaling basically. Right. Correct. Like, like, what are you going to do? Like, okay, join my tribe. No, that's, I mean, fine. Uh, maybe, maybe you get a few people to do that. I think generally what you do is you just kind of, you're browbeating people into lying to you about the fact that they're not doing a thing that they're probably doing. Whereas like, if you go to like, I don't know, a one coin type meeting, because, because here's the thing, Bitcoin confers a lot of knowledge. Like you can know a lot about Bitcoin and, and the result of that is that you can look at one coin and know it's a scam. So you can go to a OneCoin meeting, you can disrupt it. You can go to like a BitConnect meeting locally in your area, you could have disrupted it. Um, these are things that you could have done. And I think that it's on Bitcoiners to spend their time doing more of that kind of thing. You know, standing up and letting, you know, churches where a BitConnect meeting is going to happen, know that they're they're hosting a, a Ponzi scheme or showing up yourself and asking really hard questions. I think those are I think those are much more interesting ways to prevent people from losing their money than trying to get them out of Ethereum. I think that's a good point, actually. Like, lo- like local activism is much more effective than, you know, it's also more fun. On Twitter, on Twitter. Record it and put it on the Internet, you know. The death threats are also very funny. Like we did this to a OneCoin meeting and uh, the guy who arranged it spent the next week calling us and giving us hilarious death threats and uh, telling us he was going to kill us and stuff. It was very, very funny. He's just an old man. He runs a, a, an ice cream shop locally. Like we knew exactly where he was. And we just, it was one of the funniest things that we've, you know, it was hilarious. Um, 
and I, I get a kick out of like hearing people like Andreas say that they get death threats all the time and these other people that claim they get death threats. And I just think it's very funny because the only time I've ever received a death threat uh, is when I disrupted a Ponzi schemers, uh, you know, meeting and he sent me hilarious death threats. I, I, I literally can't take these things seriously. They're very funny. I never got a death but threat, it but was I very effective. about three violence threats. Really? Yeah. And, and what do those, what do those look like? Like, I'm going to hurt you. Oh, like, uh, I think the, the, the closest one I can remember was basically somebody saying like, don't come to this conference or you'll regret it or something like this. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wasn't <laughs> going to go? the conference anyway. <laughs> so it, did, it wasn't a factor, but it was, you know, I've had a few people basically threaten that, it, you know, they would kick my ass or that if they saw me, they would fight me or whatever but never a death threat and it's all from just been like totally owning somebody on twitter that's all it's been for (laughs) oh yeah i i do i do find bitcoiners i mean like there's there's a lot of crazy in bitcoin um and i just I, i do think it's funny to like listen to them you know discussing money and whatnot like i just think there's there's a lot of work to be done in a lot of humility that needs to be gained in Bitcoiners, I think, generally before they can really go out and talk about what Bitcoin is, because Bitcoin is uh, a deep subject that I think is largely philosophical and less technical. And uh, I think that a lot of people don't spend the time to think deeply about the philosophy that makes Bitcoin Bitcoin and makes it interesting. I agree. Like I haven't been doing podcasts a lot the past year because I've been like in quote unquote stealth mode, but like, I've been wanting to talk this way and, and, and kind of I've I feel like I've learned a lot about Bitcoin in private in the past couple of years. And I want to mm-hmm. I want to talk about it more and share it with more people. And, and it's all like stuff about the abstraction of Bitcoin and how things actually like work, regardless of the technology. And I, I feel like. Right. And, and, and like, so basically, like I reach this point where like some days I feel like, wow, like you really figured some of this shit out. And that was hard. It took you years. <laughs> And then like within an hour, like there'll be something else. I'll be like, man, you are a fucking idiot. Like you don't understand shit. And I think that's the line you need to live on in Bitcoin. You need to try to stay on that line if you can. It's just between feeling stupid and being expert. I I agree. Um, I mean, like lightning networks happening. You know, I've spent a lot of time reading about finance generally and trying to understand the history of money and understand what makes money money not not from like a philosophical perspective but you know reading Keynes and reading Hayek and reading all of all of the important people uh in in finance well modern finance you know reading as many books as I can about you know why people trade how to trade um you know what what has built the modern economy and and now I'm just trying to you know with lightning coming out I'm I'm actually deciding I was like you know I, I should probably explore these sort of like esoteric finance topics in the West like uh, like Islamic finance I think uh, that's yeah. a very interesting topic and I think lightning is probably uh, is is a very interesting sort of foray into the topic of something like uh, what I think it's called Hawala mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the entire subject of like Muslim finance which I think we have completely sort of ignored in the West and don't know much about, but which the entire East has run on for, you know, centuries. Yeah. I have a lot of these notes, but one of my notes is to do, to do exactly that, to go and spend some time researching the, you know, I don't know what the appropriate term is. So I hope I don't say the wrong thing, but you know, different types of uh, Asian and Middle Eastern finance that, you know, that are ancient 
um, like like Hawala and things like this. Uh, you, again, forgive me if I'm using the wrong terms, but uh, yeah, I think you. you were in the the tweet thread when we were talking about that on Twitter once. Um, that how Lightning Network compared to uh, you know these these networks that people used to use for money and how there are some good things, probably some really good learnings about uh, protocol design from how humans solve things. You know, a even years more ago. so. There's probably a lot of good opportunities in terms of understanding how to make money yeah, in yeah. a system that's designed like that. What roles from exist centuries? In? Yeah, like how do you sit in the middle of transactions? Where should you sit in the middle of transactions? What makes transactions more or less efficient? Well, yeah, this gets into the lightning thing. Like you were talking about running lightning and the idea of people like routing and running money, making money residually. And then I was bringing up how uh, I think about lightnings for business. And like, so yeah, like what what is the real lesson? Like if we go back and look at history, maybe we'll learn what in, where in between those lines is actually the, the correct design for who, for how to trust somebody to like make money as a middleman in this situation, you know? What is, what is the correct way to price lightning transactions? You know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting. And I think that there's like a lot of opportunity and sort of understanding these like very esoteric pieces that we've never really ever understood or bothered to in, in America. And I, I think that that's a really cool thing when you see like an opportunity to understand something. I mean, Bitcoin is a technical thing, but you can understand Bitcoin also in a philosophical way. And there's a lot of philosophy that needs to be done in, on, on the subject of money and thinking about money, it's it's a very important topic, and it's very difficult to wrap your head around because uh, most people think of Bitcoin exclusively technically, and I, I find that to be um, it's not a problem, but it's it's just interesting that like people haven't figured out yet that there's a lot to be done, just sort of in like philosophizing about Bitcoining and understanding like the topic of money itself. And you know, I think that's something that really lacks uh, not just here, but like you know, pretty much pretty much throughout the Bitcoin space. So I'll use this as my last kind of topic since it's a bit weird, but um, like I'll give you what I think is like my my current like most abstract understanding of Bitcoin because I want to see what you think of it. <clears throat> so I think that Bitcoin is actually like a networked game, and it is like totally abstracted just the concept of a game, and that all of the uh, you know all of the addresses and such represent accounts and scores, and that basically the object of the game is to create one final transaction where all the Bitcoin goes to one person. <laughs> uh, that's not wrong. That's, uh, I think you summarized a, a lot of things, including essentially what is the Byzantine general's problem, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's very interesting. I, I like that analogy. The last part I'm not so sure about, like where, where all the money goes to one person, because it's not like really what you want is like this, this game to be in a perpetual state, right? Um, well, I, I think this is what I mean, like, I've thought a lot about this, like the idea of a game that represents how a blockchain works. I, I mean, like, I think it could be easily done on like a board game type thing um, because, yeah, it is. It, it absolutely functions just like a game. I don't think that's wrong. And because of all the narratives people use, they will never I won't say never because I, I obviously think of it this way, but they will probably not ever think of Bitcoin in abstract ways like this. They, they will think of it Correct. as money, basically. Like, how do you ever talk about or, or even think about that Bitcoin might just be an abstracted network game if you're always talking about it being money? Because it's just scores. Like, it, it's, it's literally not money. Like, it, it's just database numbers, right? Essentially, yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny. You can have a whole Bitcoin conversation without talking about like sovereignty and the sovereign individual and, um, you know, sound money and stuff like that. I think that that's foreign to most Bitcoiners. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that most Bitcoiners nowadays can. And I mean, you're, you're an early Bitcoiner. I, I thought it was really funny. Um, I, I'm going back to like the libertarians because they're, they're so prevalent in the space right now. And they're such a fucking frustrating problem for me. Bitcoiner, I remember early Bitcoin, uh, libertarians rejected Bitcoin. They were not here for a, a very long time, probably, probably not until 2015-ish, 2014, 2015, because they all said that money or that, that Bitcoin wasn't backed by anything. And they were making that argument. Bitcoiner was not built on this notion of like libertarian finance. It was really built on, uh, you know, by, by, by geeks and people that were curious about the finance stuff. And then, you know, there was smattered in there, you know, a lot of uh, discussion about money and how it should work in order to be like money. But there wasn't like this sort of overarching need to be a libertarian to think that the project was really cool. And, uh, and I think that that gets in the way of like thinking about Bitcoin an awful lot, these sort of preconceived notions that you bring to Bitcoin and wrapping it in sort of the veneer of your own biases and, and stupidities and, uh, and, and not questioning your initial assumptions when you got here. Yeah. That's why I brought that up because I think that lack of humility denies you to be able to discover ideas like that. Like if you, if you're always lying or compensating for what Bitcoin really isn't in a narrative, you're never really discovering what it really is. I think that's true. All right. Probably well, a good place to end, huh? Yeah. <laughs> pretty good place to end. <laughs> um, you know, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you have any like call outs or links or places you would like people to visit? Uh, I mean, jump on, uh, check out, check, I mean, it's not my project, but I've been uh, using Git Umbral, uh, Umbral's mm-hmm. node. It's it's a really simple, neat little uh, UI heavy node. If you want to try Lightning, uh, a lot of people say it doesn't work and a lot of people say that nobody's on it. They're, they're not correct. Um, if you want to listen to my podcast, I think I gave this out earlier, but soundcloud.com slash world, or I think you can get it on Apple Podcasts. I don't think it's been removed there yet. Um, you know, Junseth's world. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's about it. I don't think I have a lot of <laughs> shout outs to give. Uh, it's a different world now. Nowadays, I just kind of like, uh, watch Bitcoin and, and go participate in like discussions, but it's different. You know, in the BU days, it was every week talking about it, every, every waking moment thinking about it and sort of like, you know, malleating it in our minds. And, uh, nowadays I just kind of get to watch. It's kind of nice. You're like Bitcoin retired, right? <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that in the money sense. I meant like like Bitcoin, like more like the Godfather or like a (laughs) grandfather. Like I get to watch my, my kid grow up and it's not like I built Bitcoin, but I do feel like I had a significant, uh, amount of influence on culture in Bitcoin. And in that sense, like I get to kind of watch it grow and, and do new things and crawl and poop for the first time. And, uh, and, and I like that. I like that sort of like getting to sit back and watch it do its thing. Are you going to the conference in Miami? I am. Cool. Yeah. I won't, I won't be there, but (laughs) good. If you came, I'd kill you. Good. (laughs) Is that a threat? It is a threat. Yeah. It's a, it's a death threat. All right. Well, that's a good place to cut this off. (laughs) Thank you for coming. (laughs) We'll have you again sometime soon. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. 
Cool. Thanks, Mel. <laughs>